This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. So thanks um, for joining us. Uh, my name is Alex Kelly. I'll be moderating this great panel. And I just wanted to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are discussing today, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and to acknowledge that sovereignty and this land has never been ceded. And I always think that um, when we're having conversations about the role of uh, culture and story and social change, I think that we really need to look at the incredible resilience and power and leadership of Indigenous people. And I think particularly um, when we look at the role of film and social change, I think we can see an enormous amount of work that has been done by Indigenous filmmakers that's incredibly powerful in this space. So keeping that top of mind. These conversations about film and social change have been happening for a long time and there's many people that have been doing this for a long time but the term impact and the term impact producing has kind of been coined in the last five years and AIDC held the first impact day and impact stream last year and then this year is the second time that there's a sort of impact stream within the program which is really exciting. And part of what we wanted to do with this session was to sort of say, okay, there's this term for impact, there's this idea of impact producing, all of a sudden there's funding for impact producing. We're looking at a lot of case studies, but what it is still hasn't become concretized, it hasn't been completely defined, it's not absolutely crystallized, and actually recognize that in that moment, in this moment, where it's still up for grabs, where we're still trying to work out what it is, how we do it, how we say whether it worked or not, how we measure it. This is a kind of really exciting time that we get to, we as makers and people involved in the space really get to be part of defining it. So um, bringing together a filmmaker, an academic and an organiser. Each of these fantastic speakers are just going to give us um, five minutes of their thoughts each around this field from their perspective as the academic filmmaker and organiser. And then we're going to just have a quick check in again and see what burning for you, then we're going to have a discussion together, then we're going to get your questions. So I don't want to talk too much more, I want to jump in. I thought that we might start with a filmmaker, seeing as we are at a, a, a film event. Um, Rebecca Barry, um, so many, everyone has so many hats, so these are super brief buyers, there's longer ones online. Director and producer, runs Media Stockade, a production company that also has long done impact work before it became called Impact Work. Um, take it away. Sure, thanks for having me too and great turnout. Um, yeah, so we together, my business partner Madeline Heatherton and I created Media Stockade. Uh, we're having our fifth birthday in April which is really exciting and Media Stockade uh, creates and supports social impact storytelling and usually that's through uh, documentary. Um, and some of our films include I Am A Girl, Call Me Dad, uh, The Surgery Ship, which has just been, we're just finishing off a series for Nat Geo, and, um, and another film, The Opposition, which was the subject of a, a, a legal um, case last year, which we won. Um, both Call Me Dad and The Opposition were part of the first good pitch. Um, so we've had that incredible experience. And then I guess the, the backstory was that um, my film, I'm a Girl, um, 
uh, which was, I guess, um, pioneering in a way that it proved the philanthropic funding model through the Documentary Australia Foundation. So we were the kind of the first one that um, proved that funders and philanthropists were interested in documentary as a um, as an impact tool and to create change and to create conversations around particular issues. Um, and then I guess back when we were making I'm a Girl, we didn't really know of impact producers and and it wasn't just us, there were other people, um, Terry Calder, you know, uses, um, you know, has, has who's working for us now with Media Stockade, um, you know, had had a doing impact work using film. Um, there were other filmmakers, Jen Bailey with her film. Um, I'm 11. I'm 11. <laughs> uh, so similar to I'm a girl, I have to, it grabs me each time. Uh, you know, she was doing impact as well, but we weren't really calling it impact. So we've kind of like gone in this journey um, over the five-year period and it's it's been really exciting to experience, uh, you know, creating impact on the smell of an oily rag and then it's been really amazing to be resourced um, at not just financially but also with the uh, extraordinary um, in-kind support from, from Good Pitch. Um, and look, we've had, we've learnt so much. Um, Media Stockade's primary core business is to produce films. Uh, Madeline and my own films, which we direct and produce, but then we're also working with a lot of female um, filmmakers. A lot of them tend to be female. Um, we try to employ men, but they just kind of, I don't know what's going on. We have to work on our gender equality. But um, the um, <laughs> um, but then I guess what the, the impact side of the business, which is uh, really growing uh, and was supported through an enterprise grant um, through Screen Australia, which I thought was really... Um, innovative and exciting uh, risk that they took on that um, was that really out of frustration as filmmakers often we find our films you know they get a broadcast they go on iview and then dvd sales and then you don't hear anything else or if you tapped into your community you do but you don't sort of have this um pathway to actually create impact and measure impact so out of our frustration of wanting our films to do work I mean these films sometimes they take um, you know girl took seven years to make opposition took five years to make surgery ship we've been making variations of that film for you know another five or six years you want your film to have impact so we have the skills we really love it we've seen you know the the results of 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 what change can do and um, with with Terry Calder you know we not just um, create impact and strategize around our, our, our own films but we also offer that to other filmmakers because it's a skill that we have and um, and we really enjoy it so that's where we're kind of up with with impact and we've also sort of just very briefly seen the you know the the weaknesses and strengths of um, of what impact is and what it can do, and the weaknesses and strengths of doing it on a smell of an oily rag, and the strengths and weaknesses of doing it with a coalition of partners and um, and a bit of money too. And because we're just talking about defining impact, who do you think is defining it the most at the moment? Is it the filmmakers, the impact producers, or the funders, or the screen agencies? Who's 
or good pitch? Who's driving the definition of what it is? I mean, it's all of us probably, but... <laughs> yeah, look, I think um, obviously good pitch put it on the map in Australia and I think that they created the definition of what it was and that it was a specific role and that it's an important role. So I feel like they've that they can kind of... I mean, that's my opinion. Um, uh, and and then I think people who are driving it, well, I guess we, we when we're working with a film it's the filmmakers that are really driving that because they're the they're the experts they're the ones that um in in the subject matter they're the ones that can you know see that there's a reason why this film needs to be work and uh, to, to exist and it needs to be put to work so the filmmakers are often driving it the problem is is that the filmmakers are in the in the food chain are the, the the sort of the poorest <laughs> of the batch so it's then about you know creating a story and a strategy um, and we help them do that to uh, communicate to a funder or a potential um, whether that's in kind or financial to communicate um, what this um, what this film could do um, so good pitch to find it I guess created um, the the foundation and then filmmakers seem to be driving it great and for people that um, don't know good pitch Australia is part of a program globally called good pitch squared which comes out of the work of BritDoc in the UK so BritDoc were actually the organization that um, coined the term impact producing um, at a retreat they did about seven years ago I think James can correct me if that's wrong Seven sounds about right. Um, so have a look at the work of Brit Doc, and they also have a great guide online, which is the Impact Field Guide, which has a whole lot of stuff that's really useful if you're interested in this. So thank you. Um, now I think it's great that we've got someone here from the US. We're going to go to the academic now um, because um, the field has a longer history there and probably more players in it than there are in Australia yet. So I think that gives you an interesting perspective. We've got Patricia Afterheide with us who's from the Centre for Media and Social Impact at the American University in Washington DC who is in Australia on a Fulbright fellowship and has many, many research interests um, and I don't know how we're going to keep you to five minutes in your first, <laughs> first introduction. So thanks. So thank you for, for uh, inviting me onto this panel. It means a lot to me to be at AIDC. I've been dreaming of getting to AIDC since I met Julia Overton when we were both just young people. <laughs> and, and it's really thrilling to be here. Uh, you know, we, we work in such an entirely different environment in the US. We don't have significant government funding for any part of the arts. And we are really dependent on private funders. In recent years, some of the most, the biggest new players in the private sector are people who are highly data-driven, people like Skoll, organizations like Skoll Foundation and the Gates Foundation. And um, this, along with changes in the nonprofit foundation sector generally, has increased a demand upon people who receive their money to uh, provide outcome documents that show that the money was not only spent, but well spent with uh, some demonstrable results. This um, this has had a number of effects, not all of them salutary. Uh, many people who make a film uh, don't make a film with the expectation that that one film will change the world. Uh, or else they do and they're wrong. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, 
the ability of one media product to completely change an ecology is, is highly unlikely. Um, nonetheless, powerful stories make a difference, but then how do we show that difference? One of the responses of the field that has not been helpful is to put your head in the sand and say, they're asking me to count. I hate counting. <laughs> counting has nothing to do with art, and I am an artist, and the powerful emotional drama of my story cannot be reduced to this bean counting that they are demanding of me. Does that sound familiar at all to anyone? <laughs> okay, so that is also not productive. Uh, it doesn't get anybody closer to writing their final evaluation document, and um, it disempowers people from doing something that could be very valuable, which is asking yourself at the beginning of the process and as you develop the process, constantly checking in with yourself, what, why do I want to do this and who do I want to work with and what do I hope will happen as a result? Those are all very reasonable questions that are all helping people design strategies. One of the mantras of our center, since we started it in the year 2000 and we've had an annual conference around this ever since, is strategic design. Don't be afraid of the word strategy when you're doing social issue films because you're, you implicitly will bring it along with you anyway. So surface those goals and desires and then figure out how you want to work. Some people want to do a film that is appropriate for broadcast long-form storytelling, and that's all they want to do. Um, and that can have an impact. There are, in, it has a certain kind of impact within a media ecology. Other people are working on a film that is part of a big project that has, in which the film plays a role, and other media products they may produce play a role. And for some people, a film is a project. Mitzi Goldman did an amazing film last year here, uh, Kaching, which has had an enormous impact in uh, New South Wales uh, and is now going national around uh, pokies and gambling addiction with an enormous amount of partners where the film was in the center of the project and has resulted in actual uh, parliamentary change. So uh, you, you have different approaches, but I think the mechanisms for them uh, don't become a victim to other people's inappropriate evaluation mechanisms. And the, the second thing we constantly urge people is don't be afraid of uh, partnerships with people who may be sophisticated in the kinds of things that you were never trained in and don't want to get trained in, such as statistical analysis and working in SPSS and knowing which numbers are relevant, which kinds of quantify, which kinds of things are useful when quantified. Anything can be quantified, but some things are more useful when they're quantified than others. Uh, it really helps to work with social scientists who are really used to asking such questions in, and also asking the kind of questions that Nancy Schwartzman raised in her keynote today about what are ethical approaches to both data collection and data revelation. Um, so partnership is important and so is strategic design. This kind of idea of placing uh, films in an ecology of change and um, speaking to people that work 
in change making outside of the film sector is one of the reasons that um, Tim Norton was invited to come and join the panel. Um, Tim's the head of campaigns at Save the Children. He's also the founder of Digital Rights Watch and has a long history in digital organising and campaigning. So thanks for joining us, even with the caveat that you're not a filmmaker and it's it's good to have you here. Yeah, I was actually going to start with this. This, oh, this is not my world. <laughs> um, I did study film criticism, which was in my bio that's on the website and I put that there because I did four years of film critical studies and then realized there's no job in it uh, so I shifted into the activism sector um, because I couldn't so much work there there's, uh, th <laughs> that's a good point there's a lot of work not a lot of money <laughs> um, but hearing um, uh, the other two talk about the, the role of this and how it intersects with my sector, um, I think the, the key thing that I wanted to put forward is that um, activism and social change, no one is an expert in. And anyone who tells you they are is, is again, is lying. Um, because the only way that we change the social structure is by an ecosystem. Um, if you take a campaigning campaign, for example, in the Your Rights at Work campaign, it was a huge monumental effort here in Australia by the union movement. And it was an effective gal organizer around workers' rights, which were eroding over the decades previously, and combating a federal government to make them not put forward, you know, huge industrial relations changes, the work choices. It worked. It won. And then the awkwardness of my work comes in, which is the holding the line. It's the, the horrible part of my work. You can make a really p punchy campaign. You can get people activated and you can throw them at government to say yes or no to a piece of legislation. And that's really fun. And that's the really punchy stuff. And that's where powerful films, good social media, punchy campaigns, rallies, mobilizations, all the fun stuff comes in. And then once you've won, you've got to make sure that they never come back to it. And a couple of years later, they came back to it. And slowly, we're eroding industrial relations law. And what the opposition, which is most of the right in my case, um, are learning from that is that it's the punchy moments that they'll never win, but the slow erosion of rights that they'll always win. Um, you see the same thing with the constant erosion of the Human Rights Commission, uh, with offshore detention. There's no big punchy moment. They're designing it and they're strategizing it decades in advance so that it's a slow process of them just picking away at all the things that we want to actually uphold. And I say that because when we talk about partnerships between the nonprofit sector and the creative sectors, it's the punchy stuff that wants to get done. And that's fun and that's great. That's not going to win. Um, and then that's where you get this difficulty that on my side, I'm not an expert in the creative industries and, and most of the organizations that I've worked for, we, we suck at it. You know, we, we talk about us being storytellers for change and we talk about being a communicator to the people who are our, our recipients of aid, in my case, children in developing countries. Previously, I worked in the environment sector, so I guess I was talking about trees. Um, but that, that role of being an advocate for whatever the, the beneficiary is, um, we talk about being a storyteller for it, but the stories we're telling, we rarely talk to anyone who's not converted already. We rarely do more than just hold on to them and keep them engaged, either by continuing to make them advocates, continuing, continuing to make them donate. Um, when you look at the charity sector, the amount that we're able to pick off of new donors and new supporters, it's very small. There's an awful lot of overlap. Amnesty's audience is the same as mine. Greenpeace is the same as WWF. So. There's a, there needs to be something that happens there around how do we reach new audiences. 
And that's where I think a creative partnership such as film can actually work really well. Um, some of the big punchy ones, An Inconvenient Truth or It Changes Everything, it goes to such a wide audience and it sets off a light bulb and then allows them to say, hang on, I didn't know about this. There's something wrong. I can see now that there's a movement towards what I achieve, what I need to see to achieve a goal but I don't know what to do about that. And that's where the nonprofit sector can come in and provide those tools. And I think that was you know, very effective with the It Changes Everything tour around the world because it did sort of point, okay, well, here's how you can get engaged. Here's how you can take action. Here's how you can join a list just so you can know more about it and empowered people to go on the long journey. And hopefully we don't bore them out in the process because the number one thing that I, I always say and need people to understand is that Social change is a really, really long process, and it can get incredibly boring. And you need to be almost a you know nihilistic masochist to be involved in the sector, <laughs> um, because you have to have an attitude that you'll never win. You'll just have a win, and then you'll hold the line, and that. That's what sort of um, yeah that needs to be in the zeitgeist of how you approach social change. Thanks, Tim. Um. <laughs> just bringing the mood up. <laughs> Before we open up to more questions, just thinking broadly around partnerships and the sort of broader ecology of change, then looking at um, being responsive in our strategies. I want to talk to you a bit, Rebecca, about a specific example of the opposition, and then let's come back to the measurement evaluation quest funding bit at the end. So we. So, and I would like to just yeah. have an intervention about the uh, preaching to the converted. Yeah, great. <laughs> We'll squeeze audiences in there too. Great. So the ecology, the partnerships, um, as a, with the films that you've worked on, Rebecca, obviously you've partnered with different organisations and has one of the things I think that takes the pressure off filmmakers a bit from thinking they have to do everything with the film is kind of partnering. Do you want to speak a bit about your experience with doing that kind of work? Yeah, well, look, the great um, thing about when you find the right partners is that they... they they do the work, and I th as, as filmmakers, we have a. Um, I guess the instinct is that, you know, we have to do everything, and it's it's physically impossible, and it is a skill, and we often dive into these issues and and you know, become an expert in the world of the film, but we're not actually the experts, like the people who are, you know, there are environmental experts, there are gender experts, there are organisations that, you know, have been at the coalface of trying to solve these problems for, you know, many, many years. So you have to kind of, um, you know, tread carefully when, you, when you're going to go in and, you know, create a partnership. And, um, and an example of that, is uh, one of our films, Call Me Dad, which is about domestic violence through the lens of a men's behavioural change program, um, was really controversial in the domestic violence uh, sector because it gave, uh, there was a perception that it could give a voice to the, the, the perpetrators of violence um, and that that would take away from um, the resources and the much needed conversation that we had to have around victims. So we had, um, you know, uh, Terry and, and Madeline and Sophie, the director, uh, spent a lot of time, years, trying to, you know, gain the credibility that this film was an important part of the conversation. And it, 
and it is because the conversations that we have around domestic violence are often, you know, at the car crash at the end when someone's in hospital or murdered or hurt. And 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 what our film was looking at, well, there, if, if there are men who see, who understand that they have a problem and have a desire to change, shouldn't we be trying to solve it way back before people get hurt? And, and it took a lot of time and energy to gain that trust and build those partnerships. But then when you, when you do have an active partnership, it's, it's extraordinarily liberating because you do, um, you do access new audience and different audience um, and you might um, want to be really strategic about a particular partner that you go with. For instance, in with I'm a Girl, we had a, a not-for-profit partner plan who work with gender inequality and children, but then we also partnered with a, um, a travel company, Intrepid Travel, and, and the reason we did that was because of data, because we had, um, I've, I've become a bit of a data addict with um, and measuring things. So we had a, we put a, a trailer up on YouTube and I, um, you know, with the, with the different and other places and with the um, the, the, stat the statistics uh, that came through, we understood that our obviously, I mean, it was some of it was obvious, but we were able to prove that our audience was women 35 plus in certain countries, and that just so happens to be the same clientele that Intrepid Travel have for their eco tread lightly, you know. Um, so there was a great, um, you know, um, you know, really amazing alliance there and then what that did was it sort of tapped into an audience that was um you know i guess uh, you know could be open to exploring the idea of gender inequality in a more um submersive way yeah. um and they had an extraordinary database 700,000 people and and so we were we were able to grow from that and super quickly, knocking off another question, how soon did the impact producers start on Call Me Dad and I Am A Girl? Uh, well, the impact producers on I Am A Girl was basically me and then Esther, came, Esther Harding came on board and, and then we had... So I guess we were kind of... Uh, you know, if we were to apply you know, impact... Uh, producing term, we were doing it right from the start. Like I was reaching out to the partnerships in pre-production and um, and and you know pitching to partners. And um, although our, I, I don't really think we understood strategy at that point. Like it really was yeah. kind of, yeah, help us make, help us fund our film was the primary um, thing. And then once the film was made, then we were able to unlock some money with the support of um, DAF and Susan McKinnon helped us find some education money to create resources. And um, and then the other thing that, that DAF did was, um, because I think it was the, the first film to prove their model was that uh, we evaluated the film. So there's a report, an evaluation report um, up on the DAF website about what I'm a Girl did um, in terms of impact. And we were measuring that from the first screening that we had. Great. Yeah. Thanks. And Tim, just jumping back to the partnerships, being on the other side, um, you know, I imagine that when you're in the green space, there's lots of people making climate or forest or nuke films that are looking for partnerships and now being in the refugee space, I bet there's a lot of people, including me, knocking on your door with their, <laughs> their film. Um, what's that like from the other side? I think it's um, having the conversation around what are you trying to achieve, so less the measurement but actually like 
what are you actually trying to change? Um, and it's something that I talk to my peers and colleagues all the time about, like what's credible change look like? Um, so for example, I, I worked on the Fight for the Reef campaign, um, which was obviously trying to, to save the Great Barrier Reef, um, but specifically around the impact of coal mining um, and coal ships and the impact of pollution and climate change. Um, so no, no small thing. Um, but one of the things that we did from the outset was we tested what was a credible way to get the affected communities involved. So we polled southeastern Queensland and said, you know, the Great Barrier Reef is dying, do you care? Uh, and most of them said no. Um, because the, the little white liberal from Melbourne in me said, well, it's a beautiful environmental, uh, oh, I have to step out of my Northcote bubble and actually understand what's relevant for these people. Um, and these people were losing jobs because they worked in primary industries that were being shut down and they were worried about their family's income and their future. And that's valid. They didn't have space to think about the reef. And so our tactic, our campaign tactic, was to make the reef relevant to them. So we actually prosecuted an economic argument. We pointed out that the Queensland government was destroying the tourism industry. If you destroy the tourism industry, towns die and you'll never have a job. So you should care about the reef. Um, and suddenly we had hundreds of thousands of Queenslands pushing for action. Now at the time it felt dirty because to me the intrinsic value of the reef should be enough to get people riled up. But the reality of the situation is that's not going to work. Um, and it means that when we worked with creative partnerships, when we had um, you know, Nat Geo and other international uh, TV company, TV stations and documentary filmmakers who wanted to come out and make a, a very David Attenborough-esque, you know, beautiful reef documentary, we had to say, well, we can't partner with you on that because it's not going to work. It's not going to win. You can make it, that's great, but we're not going to promote it. We're not going to be a partner with you because that's not the change we're trying to seek here. And that was a really awkward conversation to have because there's validity in having a beautiful documentary. There's validity in having David Attenborough come out, as he did, and say, wow, look at the reef, it's going to be dead in 10 years. Um, it's probably about eight by now. Um, but there's, there's more value in us producing short, punchy videos at a lower quality because we had to do it ourselves that were targeted towards you know, having a guy in an Akubra. We actually had um, Steve Irwin's dad, Bob Irwin as our main spokesperson because he looks like a, a genuine bloke. He wears a nice hat. He speaks with a gruff Queensland accent. He appeals to a coal miner. Um, and that's what we needed to achieve. Now, if we put Bob up as the spokesperson on a David Attenborough-esque thing, it never would have worked. So that's where we sort of have those difficult conversations about strategy. And sometimes the strategy is not what you're trying to achieve in a creative venture. Yeah, and then I guess it's that choice of the filmmakers, whether or not they want to dovetail into what you're doing or they're doing a different project and need to find a different partner. Yeah, I um, think on that, actually, one of the things that I will give the non-profit sector a lot more credibility for these days is working better in partnership with each others, with each other. So in that instance, if we could identify that we're not the right partner, we'll push it on to someone else. So I know there's a few films in the refugee space where Save the Children was not the right partner because of the political uh, change that we were advocating for. And so we sent people off to the ASRC, to Amnesty, to Get Up, because it's much better that things will have a right fit than we just say, no, go away. Um, Pat, in terms of partnership audiences and the choir, um, what, about preaching to the converted, what were you wanting to... Uh, so again, I'm, I'm speaking out of a, a US experience uh, where we have a, a really complex, thriving nonprofit sector. The independent sector accounts for, I think, around 17 to 20% of, of our GDP. It's gigantic. Uh, and there are many, many different 
flavors on any particular issue. Uh, and so there are, there are kind of two bundles of partnership problems for a social change filmmaker. One of them is deciding uh, who are appropriate partners. And, and I'm so grateful to Tim for signaling that, that each individual NGO is its individual NGO because it's, it's, it has a particular strategy, it has a particular set of objectives that are different from the other NGO on the same general topic. And so if I, you know, I find filmmakers are generally like, I have a human rights topic, so my, every NGO on human rights should care about my subject, which I think demonstrates an, uh, a failure of research in that other sector, which is actually just as complicated as yours, in, in, at least in our economy, uh, and finding that right match for what your film is achieving or your project is achieving is, is actually really important. The second problem is that we uh, typically have a broadcast element to these strategies. And many broadcasters, but particularly any public broadcaster, uh, won't take a film that has funding in it from a nonprofit related to that topic. Unless apparently it's a large corporation. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> but um, so you, you end up having to think very carefully about what that relationship will be before you finally if you're looking for a broadcast strategy, because you need to be able to convince the broadcaster that you've done this entirely as an independent, journalistically responsible filmmaker. So those are two issues. The, the, the little intervention I wanted to make on, on preaching to the choir is that I, I don't think it's always a terrible thing to have um, uh, stories and moving emotional experiences in media that can revitalize your network and make them realize what they're in it for and what they share with other people in it. Sometimes it's, it is so frustrating to work against a kind of deadening status quo. We can all get sort of burned out and depressed. So it, I think it actually is sometimes it can be a positive value to um, to look at that exhausted choir and give and and revitalize them, which does not mean I don't agree entirely with what Tim said. I'm merely adding a decoration to his comment. I often um, think that the choir's not yet singing in key or in harmony together, so we actually have to do some of that work, especially when we're talking about building across sectors and looking at an, an ecology. So we started our projects, we're going along well, we found the partners we should be working with, um, and we've developed a strategy, clear goals, we know where we're going, we're fully funded, amazing, and then everything changes. Um, what do we do? What happens when you're in the middle of a project and something complex the like... Hits the fan? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, look, um, just Quickly. A, yeah. <laughs> this is a session in itself, yes. but... Yeah. Um, so, look, we made a film called The Opposition. Uh, are any of you familiar with what happened with The Opposition? So, um, it's a film, very briefly, it's a film about a, a forced eviction um, by, an, at the time, an Australian-run company. They forcibly evict, evicted this settlement communi community from a beautiful piece of land five minutes from the CBD of Port Moresby. Um, Holly Pfeiffer, the director, happened to be there when um, the police came down and used violence, bulldozers, guns going off, machetes, and um, she recorded 
uh, the story that was the inciting incident for the story. Um, uh, a politician at the time who was the leader of the opposition, um, an Australian who um, ha went on to marry a Papua New Guinean man, Dame Carol Kidu, um, went down as a human rights defender and defended the community uh, while this forced eviction was happening. Um, and then subsequently, um, later on in the film, decides to start working for the, corp the company that had forcibly evicted the community. And that's a bit of a plot point um, giveaway, but that's what that's what the case is about. So we can't really try and protect story. you from the the story. So, so then what happened is that um, uh, over a period of time, the unhappiness um, between us, the relationship soured, I guess, and and it, we ended up in court, and we had to defend our project and our process, and um, thankfully we had extraordinary support from our partners. Um, uh, namely, um, our BritDoc partners, Beatty, um, Finzi and Jess Search, who are the executive producers of the film, who just who are so used to this kind of stuff. I mean, they're at the top of their game. They're doing Citizen Four. They're doing, you know, all these amazing, incredible films. And they just went, you know, we are your backstop. Here is the support. So, and also extraordinary support from um, Bertha um, as and well. Sorry, mm. just I'm just keeping an eye on the time, but. Um, but some people wobbled. I mean, sorry, because yeah. it's e just for the interest of the audience, there's a good story and then there's the tricky stuff. Yeah, and I guess like everyone that, um, you know, becomes involved in a film, they all have a different reason for getting involved. And all of those individuals or organisations have different personalities and different thresholds. And we did have, um, you know, some challenges with... Uh, you know, keeping the team, uh, our coalition of partners on the right path. And there were some wobbles and it's scary. We wobbled, our team wobbled. It was freaking scary. Everything was on the line. Um, you know, when someone sues you, you're talking about, you know, if you lose, we're talking about a $750,000 million payout if we lose and we have to pay the other side and then n not to mention that the film like I was just absolutely outraged that this film would not be released because of someone using bullying tactics legal and financial intimidation to stop the film um, so that was very difficult um, to navigate and I think the and, and basically what that required me to do as one of the producers of the film, because we also have a business, we have other films going, which we love. Um, and by the way, all of that was at risk as well. Um, I had to, um, you know, put my head down and just focus on running the case from our side in collaboration with our legal team um, and win. Because <laughs> I'm not sure how the partnerships would be now if we'd lost. Um, the risk to our partners was um, minimal but also significant and you can't sort of minimise that um, because they give a lot too but actually we were at the, we were at the centre of the, um, you know, the, the tornado. Um, so that was really that was really difficult because it's it's a complete rattling of the cage. It's it's um, you know our families, our livelihoods, everything, um, and then 
Um, and, but, I, but at the same time, I think we did really well. And I think that, um, you know, we did have support. And I think having, um, navigating through partnerships is like any relationship in a business or a creative or a everyday work it's about relationships and we all go through ups and downs and we have to you know analyze our own behavior and look at how that's affecting the other people and then vice versa so um but the stakes were just really really high so that's what the challenge was and um and some people got really scared yeah and i mean credit to you because it's such an important win not just for that project but also for the film sector and for the media industry in australia and did you feel backed more broadly by the film sector beyond people who were already partners? So that support was awesome, amazing. And I know I'm Facebook friends with <laughs> many of you, but like we had incredible support because we shared the journey. It's just like, because it was just this complete, complete exposing of us as people and um, our values and everything that we stand for. And the community, the filmmaking community was there with us and we really felt that support. And then through that drama of, um, you know, which was basically a freedom of, became a freedom of press, the film actually really found its place, mm. which was kind of, and it actually made the film. So the, the 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 good news stories is that this, you know, extremely stressful. I call it, you know, our marketing campaign, <laughs> stressful and expensive, was you know essentially made the film and it put it on the global gave it a global footprint and then it also put us in touch with new partners so we had to redact the film to get to hot dogs because we were, the, the court case um it did need to go to to trial um and the the judge made us redact the film to get it to hot dogs and when we arrived well in the um, lead up to there we had a lot of support from freedom of press organizations journalists um and it really and that has kind of you know rippled out the ricochet mm -hmm. effect of you know to europe so holly um is now in europe Amazing. um you know um screening the film with joe and then the other thing was is that you know really kind of elevated joe's profile so joe moses who's one of the he's the main protagonist in the film he's the hero he's one of the leaders of the community um you know it raised his profile and he's given him a voice and last week he um presented twice to two different panels at the un in geneva amazing yeah i think a round of applause <laughs> And just while, before we throw open, just while we're on this, Pat, do you just want to mention Dangerous Docs and any, do you have any thoughts on risk to filmmakers in this regard? Well, thank you. Uh, so we did a study uh, in, primarily in the US on uh, filmmakers who successfully do navigate um, uh, both blowback from large corporations and from governments and what they do in order to reduce their risk, which you can never reduce to zero because something like what happened here really was you know, not, not something you could safeguard against. Um, it's interesting, one of the things they said was, uh, man, that PR smear campaign was painful. It was also completely made the film. You know? mm. uh, but uh, one of the things, uh, I, this is a study that you can find at cmsimpact.org slash dangerous docs. So cmsimpact.org is the Center for Media and Social Impact. You just put a slash and enter dangerous docs. One of the things I would point people to is that half of that is 
a resource guide giving people links to lots of different kinds of resources for lowering risk, which, as you're here to tell us, will never be zero. Because just jumping in here, but I've consulted with a lot of filmmakers about this who are starting to think about it, and everyone starts with raise awareness, and I think that's that's like a base goal, and it's kind of a given. But and and people and part of the reason people often don't want to be more specific is because they think that that means they're going to be talking about smaller audiences. Like if I target in on this one part of this issue, that means I'm going to have to talk to less people. But what I often say is that actually when you target down, drill down a bit deeper, do a bit more digging, think specifically and strategically, when you start to work with a specific audience, you'll actually find you reach more people and can build out from there. So I, I think just I think you'll find that there would be things that you can be specific about because, you know, as we were saying, one film can't do everything. And you set yourself up, I think, for a bit of failure if you start too general with, with where you where you're aiming. So the other thing I'd add to that is um it's it's fine to consult with people. Yeah. People who are in the field to help you. The the thing I hate the most is when people actually come to me with a preconceived idea of what they're going to do to change the world. You know, people come to me and say, you know, well, I'm going to run this event here and that's going to ask the Australian government to do something about Syria. And I have to say, the Australian government can't do shit about Syria. They haven't got a seat on the Security Council. They have no power. Any of the coalition forces are under control of the UK. You haven't done your research. Whereas if someone had come to me and said, hello, I make good stories. What can I do about Syria? Then I would say, well, there's a great story of the children that walk five days across the desert and then they picked up by, by um, humanitarian workers on the border with Jordan. That's a good story. I can get you that access. We can tell that story together. So that's where the, you know, come talk to me, talk to Amnesty, talk to anyone who works in the field and actually say, you know, here's my broad thing I'm interested in. What do you know? What can you advise me? Or the person who comes to you with a completely finished film and says, uh, uh, promote this for me. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it does. It really does line up quite well. Um, I used to work for Oxfam, and uh, the island president came out about the, um, the president of the Maldives, who took a really big stand on climate change and then was deposed he was, and as a coup in his own government, partly not because of climate change, but because he elevated himself to a global position, made himself a big, big target, and then his own um, party in opposition pushed him out. So he was in exile, but he was known as the person who pulled together the Pacific bloc of nations and said to the rest of the world, you know, screw you, we need to act on climate change. Now, Oxfam works very, very strongly on climate change and on rising sea levels in the Pacific. So it was perfect. We came, they came to us and said, we've got a film, can you promote it? We saw our campaign and we did a partnership. Now, that's a fluke, though. Mm -hmm. now, if someone had come to me you know, a year or two beforehand and said, we think we'll do something about rising voices in the Pacific, you know, are there any standouts? And we'd say, yeah, you know, this guy. That kind of partnership needs to happen early on, which I think goes to the question before around how early should an impact producer be involved. I'd say from the start, and also the activists and the people on the ground need to be involved at the start, even if it's very minor, even if it's a conversation. There's no partnerships yet, but you can, most organizations will allow you to have that conversation with no expectation of getting something in return. And actually, that it, it's part of the research of making the film and creating the story world. Because I think that the other side, as a, as a creative and a filmmaker as well, you have to be careful that um, you, you're honouring your story 
and really story is king in 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 at media stockade that's that's how we see it so story is king so yes like really thinking about those partnerships and the 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 work that the film will do is important and that's probably part of your research anyway because you should be talking to people who are in Syria <laughs> to make your film about Syria. Mm. Um, but at the same time, you as a creative person shouldn't be, um, uh, you know, you really do need to honour the story that you're making and that should be a primary focus. But having those conversations as early as possible is is really smart because it can take years to make a film and it takes years to develop a relationship yeah so this is a huge issue in the united states um uh, partly be, again because of that question of uh can can you uh separate yourself from activist uh organizing partners at the moment that you show up to say a broadcaster who wants you to demonstrate your journalistic integrity uh, so i i think it's a moment in journalism, which is really challenging, because journalism used to sit um, quite comfortably in this, quote, objective space where we, we cover both sides and that's it. Uh, and frankly, that moment is, which was always an artificial um, workaround to, to um, dealing with the question of, of the importance of, of media interventions in, in the flow of what people consider to be reality. Nobody can be an innocent anymore about that, even if it's a fake innocence. You, you, have, to, you have to ask yourself, as a, as a storyteller, as a documentarian, as a filmmaker, what, what, are you, what is it that you hope to accomplish here? Because either you will or somebody will use you for their purposes. Those are the only two choices, unless you don't want to do anything. So I think, I think it, it, it puts on all media makers a real responsibility to say, what do I want to do? And there's no shame in wanting to change the world because you know something that people deserve to find out about. That is actually huge impulse for most journalists. Uh, but we have, um, we have expectations. This is also in the Dangerous Stocks report, by the way, the journalistic expectations, the standards and practices, and also the accuracy me uh, measure, uh, way, uh, techniques by which we verify our facts. But uh, uh, being sure that we do really good research, being sure that we maintain good records, that we are do checking for veracity, not only at the level of the individual fact, but checking ourselves about what context we're, we're using, what kind of narratives we're using uh, to uh, describe the story, what story and whose story we're actually telling, checking ourselves to say, is that the most important story out of the welter of facts out there that needs to be told? Those are all things we can do that will, that will make us journalist journalistically credible to people, but also make us good storytellers and good journalists. And anybody who's doing a social impact and social justice kind of effort in storytelling must pay attention to responsibility and accuracy if they're going to, going to do it. They will be incredibly vulnerable to the, to the forces that don't want anybody to hear this, that 
you are fighting by telling that story if they aren't. So it's, it's one of the things that we discovered in this dangerous docs research was that a lot of documentarians don't want to think of themselves as journalists because they want to be known primarily as people who are telling emotionally powerful stories. But if they give up that journalistic responsibility, they make themselves vulnerable to much greater risk, but they also um, reduce their chances of being productive in, in a media environment. And that doesn't mean you can't work with people who have an activist agenda who are promoting one thing, but it may mean that your interests are not completely aligned with that purpose. If your interests are entirely aligned for, for synergistic reasons, great. But if you're tailoring your argument to make sure that you're not falling outside of whatever Save the Children is arguing, even if you think that there's this other story that's, that's bigger and more important to tell, then they should pay you <laughs> because you're just producing mm. their, their, uh, their non-profits. Corporate media. <laughs> Corporate media. Uh, so anyway, is that clear? So this is actually discussed in the report. I'm going to come back to you each for just a closing comment, wrap-up thoughts. Okay, we are going to wrap in just a minute, but there's a lot of stuff we didn't get to. So have a look at the Brit Doc Impact Field Guide. Have a look on um, uh, Good Pitch Australia, Documentary Australia Foundation. That's where the I Am a Girl evaluation is. In terms of thinking about places that. Um, you can go for funding. Dig around and see how other films have done this. Everybody's really just starting to figure it out. And I think the more open we are with each other as we figure it out, the better this field will grow. Um, and in terms of evaluation, again, there's a lot of material. But one of the reasons um, I wanted Tim to be on the panel was to try and start getting us as a sector of filmmakers doing this work to not feel like we only have to look at what's happening in the film space, but look at how to save the children, do their evaluation and measurement. How do aid agencies working in um, using, uh, using entertainment for education do their evaluation? There's a long practice of this outside the film world and sometimes I think we're talking about impact like we invented it and there's a lot we can draw on outside of our sector. So that was my wrap up but look sorry we didn't cover everything we couldn't in an hour but there's a lot of stuff online I'm sure everyone's happy to chat to you a bit more afterwards. Final comments Tim? Oh, just the collaboration thing. Like, I think um, it goes to the question around funding as well. Um, I can't pitch to a philanthropic organisation to produce a film. They'd laugh me out the room. But if a me and a filmmaker go in there, we can. And I'd bring the credibility of the strategy and the campaigning tactics and the political nous, and then you'd bring the creativity and the passion behind it. And that would open up rich people's wallets, hopefully. Um, I think that's the key for funding. There you go, folks. Yep. Solved. Thanks. Uh, impact is important. If you're a filmmaker, you need to think about it. It's part of your job. Uh, think outside the box with the partnerships that you are seeking and look for uncommon collaborations. I think we'll leave it there. Beautiful. Thank you. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash acmeonline or the Acme website.